Good evening. You please take your seats. We're about to begin. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, hi, my name is Lisa Ezell. I'm the Federal Society's VP for our Lawyers Chapters, and I want to welcome everyone to our annual DC Young Lawyers Summer Associate Reception. Before I turn things over to Leonard Leo, who will introduce our guest speaker, I'd like to make a few brief acknowledgments. Um, first, I'd like to thank our DC Young Lawyers Steering Committee for helping to organize today's program, particularly Steve Kenny, um, a member of our board who, who helped us with our guest speaker. Um, I'd also like to recognize two of my colleagues here today. First, my colleague Nate Kazmarek, who directs the Federal Society's Article One Initiative. Nate, I assume you're somewhere in this room. He's in the back. Um, but our Article One Initiative is co-sponsoring today's program. Um, Nate it would be happy to tell you more about the initiative, but which seeks to restore Congress to its rightful place in the constitutional order. They have been sponsoring a number of white papers and conferences, and particularly if you work on the Hill and would like to get more involved with that, Nate would welcome the opportunity to meet with you. Um, I'd also like to, in to introduce all of you here to my new colleague, Cameron Campani. Cameron has just started today as the new deputy director of our student division. Cameron, where are you? There he is. We're very excited to have him join our office, and I know we have a number of summer associates here, so if you have a chance, please take an opportunity to introduce yourself, and we'd love to see you more involved with FedSoc Lawyers events this summer. Um, with that, um, I'd like to introduce someone who probably needs no introduction, and that's our Executive Vice President, Leonard Leo. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa, very much for uh for putting this together with the, with the rest of the team. Uh, and thank you all for being here. I, I think that uh, the DC Young Lawyers Division and some of the other Young Lawyers Divisions we have uh, sprouting up around the country are one of the most exciting things that the Federalist Society has done in years. I think this is a great testament uh, to the future of the conservative and libertarian legal movement in our country. And I thank you for being here today and for all you do for the Federalist Society and for the cause of the rule of law in our country. Um, normally, normally, uh, this evening's speaker would not require an introduction, but since he has served in the Senate longer than most of you have lived, <laughs> I think we probably should say a few words about Senator uh, Charles Grassley of uh, the great state of Iowa. He has been uh, a long friend of the Federalist Society, but more importantly than that, he has been an enormously accomplished, important, and uh, extraordinary public service servant to our country. He has served in the Senate for 38 years. Uh, I think upon the retirement of Senator Hatch, he will be the longest serving uh, United States Senator currently serving. He is, as all of you should know, uh, the chairman of the Committee on the Judiciary in the Senate. And in that capacity has had an enormous record of success. Um, first of all, as you all saw, he, uh, he flawlessly chaired uh, the confirmation hearings for, uh, for then Judge Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. He has presided over a committee that is um, shepherding record numbers of judicial nominees through the, uh, through the Senate. Uh, Twelve Court of Appeals judges confirmed last year, I believe, what is it, nine so far? This year, those are, those are records 
records. At this point in the Obama administration, maybe three or four were confirmed, certainly only a handful. And so the senator has been uh, uh, just uh, um, uh, undaunting in his efforts to uphold the rule of law by ensuring that uh, the best qualified people in this country ascend the federal bench. Uh, and so we, we owe the senator and his team, many of whom are here, Mike Davis and the rest of uh, the judiciary staff and some others, uh, a tremendous debt of gratitude for their, uh, for their public service. Uh, so with that, with, with no further delay, I'm going to introduce uh, the chairman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, uh, Leo, for the kind introduction, but more importantly, what you're involved in and the president's team at the White House uh, is involved in, like Don McGahn and his team, uh, all working hard to uh, make sure that we get highly qualified nominees for the court. Um, it uh, makes my job a lot easier. And so I thank you very much, Leonard. Thank you. Uh, I'm pleased to be here to visit with you tonight about two things. Uh, if I don't touch on things you're interested in, I'll be have a few minutes for a few Q&As if you want to ask me questions. Um, the two things are the President's and the Senate's success in reshaping the judiciary, and the second one, the importance of Congress reasserting its constitutional powers. Many of you are in law school or recent law school graduates, and you're lucky if uh, the Federalist Society has a presence on your law school campus. Uh, 36 years ago, when this society was formed, it was about as hard to find conservative legal ideas at the top law schools as it is now to find the Senate in session, <laughs> especially on Fridays. Uh, 36 years ago, you would have been hard-pressed to find a place to honestly debate separation of powers or the weight, uh, uh, to weigh the values of textualism and originalism and maybe a whole lot of other things. Uh, obviously, we're still outnumbered, uh, but your society, the Federalist Society, is helping turn the tide, and every day I'll be, I'll bet, making a difference. Over the last three years, no, the three decades, the Federalist Society has encouraged law students to put its ideas to a test and has made its uh, case effectively to the American public. I think the last presidential election and 20% of the voters following what Trump said he was going to do about people for the Supreme Court and the judgeships generally uh, backs up the fact that somebody's making a big difference. For too long, the liberal judges oftentimes just made up the law based on their personal policy preferences while ignoring the plain text of the law duly enacted by the people's representatives in Congress. And now, 36 years on, the Federalist Society has proved the power of its ideas and helped steer our judiciary away from these radical and unconstitutional approaches to legal interpretation that judges must apply the law, they don't get to write it. And there's hardly a hearing 
or debate about judges where you really sense the power of the Federalist Society uh, because you're just lampooned all the time by people on the left that maybe some of these nominees had something to do with the Federalist Society. Uh, and it's a god-awful thing that could happen. Uh, you know, and I never quite heard that even from Republicans, that in the previous administration, maybe all of our nominees had a great deal to do with something called the ACLU. So you can see the, you can see the double standard. Now I'm going to rattle off some facts and figures about our success confirming qualified conservative judges. What we've been accomplishing in the Senate Judiciary Committee and on the Senate floor speaks to a much larger issue. What kind of a country do we want to have? What I believe and what I'm sure you believe is that we're a nation of law, not a government or a, a government of men or men and women. An independent judiciary that understands its role as the least dangerous branch, and you know where those words came from, is critical to sustaining the rule of law and our constitutional republic. Judges should say what the law is, not the, what they think it should be. Decades of building this vision by the Federalist Society members helped lead to this moment or this period of time when we're making this difference in not only the number of people getting uh, nominated nominate by the president, but also the type. We have a president then appointing textualists and originalist judges and a Republican Senate majority act actively confirming them. And of course, as you know, the results speak for themselves. Last year, the Senate confirmed Justice Gorsuch. He's proven himself a worthy successor to the late Justice Scalia, a person that we will, well, probably history's already said is one of the greatest justices of all times. Now to date, we have confirmed 21 circuit judges, so Leonard, you're right. A record at this point in any president's first term, that would be true at least uh, in the period of time since 1890s when the circuit court was set up, circuit courts were set up. Uh, we're confident that this Congress will confirm at least 30 circuit judges by the time we adjourn in December. Maybe do a little bit more because if we're going to meet uh, through the month of August, we'll have time to have more hearings that we didn't work into our schedule. So Mike, if you haven't figured that out, we want some hearings for judges during the month of August. Um, we will confirm more than half that number in just two years compared to President Obama's appointment of 55 circuit judges in eight years. So, We're going to get the job done, I think. Even so, all of this hasn't been easy. Referring to what the de Democrats have done, as you know, they've engaged in unprecedented levels of obstruction. 
They have required time wasting cloture votes on 39 judicial nominees, even for those who were eventually confirmed unanimously last week, today and tomorrow, a week ago. We confirmed judges by 95 to zero votes, and they had to be filibustered. So what's up? Uh, (laughs) The whole point is to pour sand into the gears of government because they don't want this president to succeed. Now, to compare what I said about 39, at the same time in the previous administration, we had just two cloture votes on Republican judges. Now, maybe some of you conservatives said, well, how come we weren't fighting as hard as the Democrats were doing? Well, I guess because of the comedy of the Senate that doesn't seem to exist anymore, but even a few years ago, it seemed to exist. These, uh, there are currently 49 nominees processed through the Senate Judiciary Committee and pending on the Senate floor, awaiting confirmation vote of the full Senate. That's three circuit courts, 38 district court, two Article I court, four main justice appointees, and two other executive branch nominees. And this number will keep growing as the Senate Judiciary Committee keeps voting out more nominees to the Senate floor every Thursday that the Senate is in session. I support Senator Lankford's proposal to reform the Senate rules so the Senate Democrats cannot continue to abuse the confirmation process. I think I have to have a drink of water. In the meantime, we simply need to outwork the Senate Democrats to stop this unprecedented obstruction. That is why I repeatedly urge Leader McConnell to cancel the August recess. I guess he thought it was a good idea, but now we'll be working for the American people during most of August. Thank you very much. The Senate Democrats claim that they need more floor time for floor speeches. Well, their wish is granted now. They'll, they'll, they'll have the whole month of August. They now, uh, we shouldn't stop uh, at canceling the August recess. The Senate generally starts its late session, its sessions late on Monday afternoon and go back out of session on Thursday afternoons. And you know, kindergartens and preschool kids have longer sessions than we have. Uh, Hey, I just got to put this in perspective, so maybe somebody's going to have one minute less to ask a question. But, uh, you know, when I came to the United States Senate, everybody wanted to know from the leader, whether he's Republican or Democrat, are we going to be able to get on a 4 o'clock flight Friday afternoon? And then maybe after 10 or 15 years, can we get on a, on a flight about 1 o'clock in the afternoon? And then uh, can, we, can, we get on, can we get on a flight at 8 o'clock uh, Friday morning. Then it was later on, well, can we get on a late Thursday flight, see? And now, now it's, everybody wants to get on a four o'clock flight on, on 
Thursday afternoon. I'm telling you, it's just like a slippery slope. It gets worse and worse. So somebody's suggesting, can't we have all the votes on Wednesdays? So we don't have to come in on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, now, I shouldn't have done that because I lost my spot. Uh, I have repeatedly urged Leader McConnell to end our French work week and keep the... And keep the Senate in session Monday through Friday, evenings and weekends as needed, until we complete the job of confirming these judges. Uh, it's, I think it's pretty simple. Maybe in a week or two, the Democrats will decide we want some time to campaign in August. So maybe they'll start letting us get some of these judges that are approved 95 to 0 on a voice vote like they used to be done, so maybe we can have a summer break. Uh, there's plenty to do if we uh, weren't doing judges, but I'm just suggesting that maybe this will wake them up when Leader McConnell says, I'm in charge and this is what we're going to do. We're going to get the job done. Um, it, it, it's amazing how many judges we can confirm by merely threatening to make the Senate Democrats work past 2 p.m. on Thursdays. <laughs> the resistance cannot resist. Long weekends. <laughs> oh, oh, in, 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 in all seriousness, our hard work now is critically important to the future of the country. Our success in confirming judges will have a significant impact on the courts. Had Hillary Clinton been elected with a Democrat majority in the Senate, we would be stuck with a liberal majority on the Supreme Court for a generation just like we hope we're getting ready for a generation of people like Gorsuch. And it's likely that activist judges would have taken over the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh circuits. Instead, we've confirmed dozens of young constitutionalist judges to the federal branch. These judges will influence the direction of law for a generation, and we have the incredible opportunity to reduce the influence of activist judges on the Ninth Circuit for the first time in years. Maybe if we get that job done, they won't be reversed so many times. <laughs> now that I've covered our success on the courts, I want to discuss something else just as important, our role in Congress in checking the powers of the administrative state to deal with the size of our country and the complexities of the modern world Congress has had to delegate some of its powers to federal agencies. It's a compromise made in the name of efficiency. The government has a big job to do, and we've only got a few hundred legislators and a limited amount of time to do it, but it's a compromise fraught with peril, and I'm sure all of you think about this. Um, the only area where I think it's legitimate is when scientific issues are involved. Maybe there's some other issues, but I always think in terms of science, maybe you, there's some more leeway you got to give. But on too many policy decisions, Congress just, I, I think they almost forgot how to bite the bullet. Are we really delegating too much authority or not? Not even thinking about it just seems to happen. And getting people to think about it, I think, would go a long ways in curbing some of this uh, uh, delegation of our power 
and then once you delegate it, it's hard to get it back. When the compromise works well, we get government that's responsive to the evolving needs of our country. When it doesn't, we get agencies that regulate every aspect of our lives with unchecked power and without real input for the, from the American people. Bureaucrats, as you know, don't have to win elections to keep their jobs. So the American people cannot hold them directly responsible for their actions. You do through the president, but big government is too much uh, for even the best of a president to watch everything that's going on in it. The courts have not been helpful here, deferring to agency bureaucrats' interpretation of the statutes when they're challenged in the court. What that means is executive agencies obtain executive, legislative, judicial functions all wrapped up in one. They make regulations, interpret those regulations, and enforce those regulations. Which brings to mind Madison's famous caution in Federalist 47 that, quote, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judicial, in the hands, in the same hands, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. In other words, as he knew it, George III. Fortunately, Madison, having identified the problem, also points us to a solution, a tripartite form of government in which ambition counteracts ambition. And here is where the Federalist Society has ridden in again to help save the day. I hope all of you are now familiar with the Federalist Society's excellent Article I initiative. Probably some of you in this room are involved in it. The project is dedicated to helping Congress assert its traditional constitutional prerogatives and checks against the other branches. It proposes reining in the Chevron deference. I'm a co-sponsor of a bill to do that, I think with Senator Hatch, as I recall. An aggressive and strategic use of Congress's legislative taxing and spending powers. But even the Article I initiative doesn't pay enough attention in my view, to one of Congress's most important powers, the power of oversight. If Congress is going to delegate some of its power to the executive agencies, it has a duty to the American people to uh, closely monitor what the agencies do with that power. It's through rigorous constitutional oversight that we can make the agencies accountable to the American people. Rigorous oversight is the basis for good law and efficient use of American tax dollars. It also helps prevent government fraud, waste, and abuse. It's a key part of keeping the uh, administrative state in check. Oversight responsibility belongs not just to the committee's ranking member and me, belongs to each individual member of Congress. It also belongs to government and corporate employees who have become aware of unlawful conduct or waste, fraud, and abuse, which is why I've worked hard to pass legislation protecting whistleblowers. They must be protected so their voices are heard. And I want to tell you that I don't think there's a single nominee that, are on, that come before the committees I serve on that they, if they come to my office, and most of them do ahead of time 
for get acquainted with them, I say something like this. I don't know how many employees you got. You could be VA with three or 400,000 employees. You could be, uh, you know, another agency with just 10,000 employees. But either you're gonna run your agency or it's gonna run you. And if you need, if, you, if you're going to run it, you gotta know what's going on below. But there's no way you can overlook all the people that are under your jurisdiction, whether it's 10,000 or whether it's 400,000. And so you ought to have respect for whistleblowing and listen to whistleblowers. Now there's not a single one that leaves my office that doesn't say that they know about the importance of whistleblower and they're going to encourage whistleblowing and listen to whistleblower. But they end up, all end up being liars or, or, if, or if they aren't lying, they, uh, they really, uh, they may have intentions carried out, but they forget it or they got so many other things to do. But I don't know how you can run this big government we have when there's honest patriotic people that we call whistleblowers, which t tends to be uh, somewhat uh, re uh, negative towards them. And it shouldn't be. Everyone I know, well, maybe once in a while you get a crank, somebody to, to, to uh, uh, ax the grind or something, as we say in Iowa. But, but really, uh, most of them that I know, they don't even know they're whistleblowers until, until they don't get any, uh, they go up through the chain of command and they don't get any results. Then they come to Congress. That's when they become whistleblowers. They most of them ruin themselves professionally. They shouldn't have to do that just because you want the government to spend the money the way the government intends to spend. The law says they should spend it or enforce the laws the way it should be done. They're just people that want government to do what government's supposed to do. And somehow you, you, you know, you're just like a skunk at a picnic. You. Uh, <laughs> you ruin yourself professionally. There's great peer pressure to go along, to get along in every bureaucracy. And by golly, I don't know how we're gonna run this government if you don't pay, when people say something's wrong, you ought to be doing something about it. So, it's not that I like whistleblowers, it's that they're very essential. And you know, on July the 29th, July the 29th, 1779 or 78, the Continental Congress passed a resolution because these sailors were uh, thrown out of the Navy or something because they reported on some captain of some ship ruining money. I guess they were absolved of whatever they were punished for. But the point is that the Continental Congress passed this you call it laws in those days, they passed something that said, if you know of, of wrongdoing in the government, it's your responsibility to report it. So government's recognition of the importance of people squealing on other people that do something wrong goes way back to the Continental Congress. So every July 29th or 28th, whenever it is, I recognize that with a resolution. So that's how I feel is what's wrong with our government. Now, George W. Bush told me one time when I was on Air Force One that I told him you ought to listen to these whistleblowers. He said, if we started listening to these whistleblowers, 
we'd have whistleblowers coming out of the woodwork. Well, that's exactly why you, uh, I told him you ought to have a rose garden ceremony recognizing whistleblowers. Because from the top of the government down to the lowest levels of government, and that's the president down to whatever the lowest level of government is, they'd know that, that the patriotic things to do is when the law isn't being enforced, get it enforced. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't appreciate a guy that I liked as president of the United States saying that you shouldn't have a rose garden ceremony recognizing uh, uh, whistleblowers because 3,000 of them will come out of the woodwork. Well, why do you think I suggested you have the, the, the rose garden ceremony? So, when I get my breath back, <laughs> I will say I encourage you and the rest of the Federalist Society to push for more congressional oversight in our constitutional system. Many of you out there will be leaders, maybe members of Congress, but working somewhere in one of the branches of our government. If you work in the executive branch, I encourage you to respond to oversight letters promptly from members of Congress, <laughs> even if it comes from the other side of the aisle. If you work in the judicial branch, I encourage you to defer to congressional intent as evidenced by the plain text and original public meaning of the law when interpreting statutes and to support Congress's oversight efforts. And if you work in the legislative branch, I encourage you to wield your oversight power like a sword to cut away waste, fraud, and abuse to bend the, bureaucrat, the bureaucratic will to the American people. Thank you, and I'm ready for Q&A. Yeah. Hi, I'm uh, Will Trackman from the Department of Education. Thank you so much for your remarks. As uh, Leonard mentioned, you're going to be the longest serving senator after uh, Senator Hatch retires. That comes along with the title of President uh, Pro Tempore of the Senate. So you'll be three heartbeats away from the presidency. I was just wondering if you have any thoughts about that or your long tenure on the yeah. Senate. Yeah. Now just think of what he said, three heartbeats away from <laughs> being president. Let's just suppose the president, the vice president, and the speaker of the house all disappear one day. Who would want to be president of the United States in those circumstances? <laughs> Okay, next question. <laughs> yeah. Nick Gallagher, NYU Law. Senator, when you think about the effective oversight, models for long-term reform and the Article One project, there are very few options that don't involve significant expansion of Congress's staff, uh, both in terms of the numbers and in terms of the ability to raise wages so that people can stick around long enough to develop expertise. Do you ever see a Congress that would uh, would actually do that? And if not, uh, if, if that is as political and politically unpalatable as it sounds, uh, how might we go about fixing this? Okay, you mean, uh, is your question that Congress is, is expanding their staff too fast and that's wrong? No, quite the opposite. Oh. Uh, I think that given the size of the bureaucracy, as opposed to the size yeah. of Congress's staff, that there's, uh, you have too many, uh, too many, too few circuits, circus masters to manage this many uh, minds. Yeah. Um, I suppose uh, 
a fiscal conservative, and some people might question whether I fall into that category, but as a fiscal conservative, I think that, that you don't expand uh, Congress just because the bureaucracy expanded or how big the job is. I just think you've got to figure out the job to do and have the people to get the job done, but it shouldn't be an end in itself, just hiring more people because the bureaucracy might be a little bigger. Next question. Yeah. Would you stand, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time tonight and for all the wonderful things you have done for this country as a public servant. Uh, one of the, the things that has been on my mind is that many of the venerable formal or informal institutions of the Senate, the filibuster, the 30-hour rule, the blue slip, seem to have become perverted to subvert what the Senate should be doing, which is deliberating on the problems of the people. And I was wondering if you could comment on those in particular and, and what we can do to reform those things such that the Senate gets back to its job of deliberating on problems rather than using filibusters and blue slips to prevent consideration and deliberation of nominees as well as issues present to the day. Since I'm 84 years old, I think what I'm going to tell you isn't going to happen during my lifetime. But I think that that this whole situation has to start with individual senators performing different and setting good examples, and eventually it, it works its way through the system, and we might get back to something that is more efficient and doing its job and yet be a deliberative body. And the only thing that maybe you might suggest that I disagree with, uh, if you did suggest this, and I'm not sure you did, but uh, if you were hinting towards uh, doing away with the 60-vote rule or a supermajority, uh, that's one thing that I would not agree with. But within that, and the reason why I wouldn't want to do that is because in our political system, the only place where there's minority points of view can be heard is within the United States Senate. And I don't think we should write out uh, the minority point of view and, and have the Senate become uh, like the House of Representatives, and obviously, for those of us that are conservative, if we hadn't had the supermajority, uh, we wouldn't have right-to-work laws because in, in, in we wouldn't have the Taft-Hartley law anymore after the, the unions control everything with 51 votes. And I could probably name 10 other major pieces of legislation that uh, conservative filibusters have probably saved or, or, or uh, long. So except for that, then I think that... Um, the, the Democrats have, have really reformed the blue slip on their own, and I get blamed for uh, its, its use or how it's being used now, which isn't any different than two out of the 19 chairmen of the, except for two out of the 19 chairmen of the committee in the 100 years of the blue slip. Every one of them have had some exceptions. And, uh, and, uh, but the Democrats are really uh, obliterated the value of the blue slip when they went to a 51 vote uh, for judges. So that's where that uh, has been compromised. But I don't consider that a compromise of what I previously told you about minority point of views, because if you go between 1789 and about 2002 or three, 
There wasn't judges filibustered. Now, somebody will say, well, uh, Abe Fortas was, but he, he only had 48 votes to begin with. So he wouldn't have got elected if, he, if it wasn't filibustered. And, uh, and so uh, it started with uh, uh, the Democrats uh, being uh, thinking they were cheated out of uh, uh, Gore being president of the United States. So they took on this crusade in 2002 and three that we can bring ideology and politics into this whole thing rather than just looking at is somebody qualified, see? And, uh, and so that's where we got where we are with judges. And uh, you can tell how sorry they are that uh, they changed the rules November 2013 because uh, all these judges that are getting through now the same people wouldn't have gotten through. See? So, one more okay, one more question. Yes. Thanks so much, Senator. <clears throat> I read a study recently about the cost of litigation in the U.S. compared to other countries around the world, and it reported that the U.S. is four or five times more than Europe and China. Uh, are there any procedural reforms you think could help improve that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do like uh, do like England. Those of you are going to be plaintiffs or attorneys, you're going to hate me for this. <laughs> do like England does. Have punitive damages go into the federal treasury, because if you commit a crime, they ought to go where where crime is punished by the by the government. One. Uh, loser pay under some circumstances. For instance, when you have arbitration and arbitration goes to court, if you don't come out the winner, maybe you ought to pay so you have frivolous lawsuits. If you don't want to have, um, like England does, then particularly on punitive damages, have some restrictions on the amount of money that can be paid out for punitive damages. That's what Texas has done. They've, uh, they've reformed a, a lot in Texas. Maybe a lot of other states have. Things like that. Uh, there's probably a hundred more things I ought to tell you, but thank you all very much. You learn, you learn two other things about Senator Grassley. One is he's a person of tremendous uh, goodwill and humility. And secondly, not a lawyer, if I remember correctly. Right? You're not a lawyer, right? That's a, that's a virtue, it's a virtue. Lisa, come on up and uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, we, the bar remains open, so I encourage everybody to stick around, have another drink, engage in fellowship. Our next event is a small dinner with Judge Danny Boggs. Check the FedSox webpage and our Facebook group for more information. Thank you.